Hello and welcome to another bubble, the Western bubble. My name is Dario and I'm here with Balder. If you don't know who we are, please listen to our regular episodes as this is one of our extra episodes. We will pick items from the news that simply scream Western bubble. In these segments, we give some quick commentary on how we interpret these events. Today, we will talk about Simon Tistel because while recording this week's regular episode on his Guardian output in general, we had even more content for another episode. So we kind of decided to record an extra episode on one of his articles in particular. Baldur, are you tired of speaking about Simon Tistel yet? <laughs> Hi, Dario. More than anything, I'm a little bit tired of reading his words in The Guardian. Um, so speaking about it is fine because he's a really good example of the problems that the media faces when it comes to this western delusion right that is so important in our podcast so i think it's 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 interesting to go through this article um because especially it's it it shows the the problems with his approach with his internal biases and maybe it's good for the listeners to be reminded a little bit of what what those principles are that we are uh, studying that we're analyzing um, in our regular episode, we already discussed them, but Tistel is one of those authors that starts with the premise that even though the West has done damage, and he was part of the anti-war movement um, in the early 21st century when it came to Iraq and Afghanistan and all that kind of thing, uh, while the West does do damage, it is still preferable to have a Western-dominated globe rather than a new type of world order where maybe China and other countries have more of a prominent position and role. And this very much comes from the place of people believing that somehow inherently the West is better because they're democratic and liberal, say, taking that position as an objective truth from where they start their analysis. And that's where things can go very, very wrong. And where things went very, very wrong is in this article. The title is The World Still Needs a Policeman. Let's Hope the US Doesn't Quit the Job by Simon Tisdale. And he published this on the uh, 26th of March in 2023. Um, we already kind of talked about the title and about the first paragraph uh, in the regular episodes. Today, we actually want to read the first half of the article uh, because it's really interesting to see his analysis on why the United States shouldn't quit the job as the world's policeman. The second half of the article we're going to leave aside, however you can read that on your own time, because it mostly deals with uh, internal U.S. politics and uh, Tisdall's take on kind of the U.S. presidency, uh, on the U.S. presidential election and what would that entail for the war in Ukraine. And then we will read again the last two paragraphs of the uh, article because that's the conclusion. Um, so yeah, let's jump right into it. Uh, so the kind of summary sentence after the title says, America's record at keeping global order is deeply flawed, but the only winners from its drift towards isolationism will be Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin, end quote. And that's basically what you just said when you reminded the listeners of what is what is Artistel's uh, views. There are two evil people in this world and they are Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin. Right. Uh, they, they are the... The boogeyman uh, for Tistel, they're the ones who are about to turn the world evil and authoritarian. And um, that needs to be fought from Tistel's perspective. 
of course, there's no nuanced analysis of someone like Xi Jinping. And very much Tistel writes in a, in a way as if Vladimir Putin is the mini-me of Xi Jinping. But because they're both authoritarian leaders, they're basically the same. And they're up to no good, right? And that kind of approach is, of course, not just overly simplistic, but it's also wrong. There is no clear indication that Xi Jinping has the same approach as Vladimir Putin. There is no clear indication that Xi Jinping uh, has the same ideological motives as Vladimir Putin. Vladimir Putin is one world leader, is, is the leader of Russia with one very specific geopolitical goal. Xi Jinping has another. The only thing that has happened, which of course doesn't get recognized by Tistel, is that because of the war in Ukraine and the Western reaction against that, Russia and China are pushed together because they find common ground in having a common enemy, the West, in having a common rival. And because of that, Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin are currently seen to work in tandem in many ways. But that doesn't mean that they have a similar agenda and that they are both striving for the same type of global world order. Um, and then the first paragraph uh, starts with, American global leadership took a serious kicking last week. Politicians and pundits on both sides of the Atlantic queued up to condemn George W. Bush and Tony Blair's disastrous invasion of Iraq, uh, of Iraq 20 years ago this month. At the same time, Congress moved to repeal the War Powers uh, Act that enables U.S. presidents to launch military interventions abroad. End quote. Uh, that's a terrible thing, right? <laughs> that one person has the power to to um, invade another country or, well, no, to intervene in another country, which is not the same as an invasion. But well, um, this, this is that really, would be terrible if one person had that power. Yeah, this is a really interesting historical thing because traditionally a war declaration, declaration of war, had to pass through Congress or still has to pass through Congress. A United States president cannot declare war against another country. But since the Second World War, when that was the last time that this happened, Uh, U.S. presidents have basically circumvented this need and they've just started sending troops, military intervention, so that they don't have to ask Congress for an official declaration of war. Countries don't declare war anymore. And therefore, this uh, requirement that, uh, that the White House has, has become antiquated, has become pointless, because you can basically start a violent conflict in Iraq or in Afghanistan without actually having to go through the proper procedures it seems very reasonable to kind of limit those options, right? And to avoid the destruction that has taken place over the past 20 years by within U.S. foreign policy. And it's interesting because, again, in the in the intro, you mentioned that um, Simon Tistel is very critical of the invasion of Iraq and, and Afghanistan. And I mean, so here he even calls it disastrous. And yet it doesn't seem like there are any lessons from this as you will hear now in the second paragraph and i quote in moscow meanwhile xi jinping stringing along his russian puppet vladimir putin proposed a new global order to replace the post-1945 us-led model china's de facto dictator is generously offering to stand guard over the planet in xi's uh, brave new world subservience and surveillance replace shock and awe uh, democracy takes a back seat end quote 
yeah, there, there's so much here to to analyze. Um, I mean, I we we could talk, but that would be a whole other episode about the word democracy once again. Um, obviously, uh, China is not a democracy according to Tistel's, uh definition, nor according to my definition. China doesn't have that kind of political system. But the 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 sarcasm that is dripping out of these words from Tistel. Um, seem to suggest that there's something kind of inherently evil about that, right? Rather than saying, hey, China has a different political system with probably some things that I personally would not be particularly comfortable with, but um, not necessarily inherently evil. Yet Tistel sort of assumes that automatically everything that she does is evil, is somehow um, ready to conquer the world and enslave humanity, because he has no time for a system that is not liberal, not democratic, not Anglo-Saxon, essentially. So that, that's that's already a an issue that is frustrating when reading a paragraph like this. Not allowing the option for other systems, other types of governance to exist in this global order. But now going back to um, the proposal of a new global order, as he, he calls it, and this goes also back to the, the summary that you read above, uh, where it says, America's record at keeping a global order is deeply flawed, but the only winners from its drift towards isolation will be Xi and, and Putin. It's this idea that the West has created this global order that is inherently good for humanity, despite its flaws, and that the West can keep on to that order if only they tried. Whereas in reality, the, the international order is changing because the West has lost power. The West has messed up. The global order set up by the West is no longer fit for purpose in the 21st century because it assumes a Western superiority that the rest of the world no longer acknowledges. The rest of the world does not believe that the West has the secret formula, the magic formula for humanity to follow. And therefore... The global order, the way we arrange things internationally, is changing. That is probably a good thing to, to change with the times, to change with the idea that, uh, or rather to change because of the uh, fact that the rest of the world also now has a say in where they want to go. And it's no longer just up to London and Paris and Washington. But that is a perspective that you can only recognize if you step out of your delusional western mind where you somehow represent everything that's good about humanity i i think to be honest i think that actually um it it, it might go a little bit a little, a little bit deeper than that is that he is afraid um that china will treat the rest of the world exactly the same way the West has treated the world before. Uh, because here he says, subservience and surveillance replace shock and awe. Um, I mean, I, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like subservience has been an integral part of US hegemony um, in, 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 the, in the last 70, 80 years. And surveillance, I mean, we've talked about this in the past, but the US is very well known for spying on all of its allies and everyone else. I mean, I'm might want to like I do want to remind uh, Simon Tistel that uh, the United States even spied on like even spies on the leaders uh, kind of like they did on Angela Merkel in 2013 when they spied on her personal phone so I'm not sure whether that would be anything new at least we need to take these two these two aspects into account 
And so what, what seems to happen here in his, and again, I'm not a psychologist. I, I have to be careful in trying to interpret Tistel's thinking behind this. But what seems to be happening is that he is terrified of living in a world um, that is controlled by a Chinese authoritarian system, by the way. That is a world that I'm also terrified of in the sense that I don't want to live in China. I'm very happy to live in Spain. Tistel is terrified of that. And as a result, because he doesn't want that system for himself, he kind of automatically then takes the position that anything that the West does that may be also seen as problematic, destructive or surveillance, subservience, uh, that, that, that may not pass, you know, a, a beauty test is okay because at least it is not like China. At least it is not that kind of authoritarian system. So basically the United States and allies get a free pass, whereas China gets scrutinized for everything they do simply because of their political system. And of course, a rational human being would separate these two things. They would say, hey, I don't want my country to follow the Chinese model. And I will, I will make the case that the UK needs to be careful not to become too authoritarian. I will work hard to make sure that the UK doesn't become too authoritarian because I don't want to live in that kind of country. At the same time, I'm not going to turn China into some kind of boogeyman, into some kind of evil monster that is about to devour the world. It is much more productive to critically assess my own nation and my own politicians. Tistel does the opposite. Moving on to the next paragraph, and it reads... That Iraq was a catastrophic, avoidable own goal is no longer plausibly disputed. Numerous prior warnings went unheeded, yet similarly short-sighted are present-day attempts from the far right and far left to use that debacle to discredit US-led interventionism in general and celebrate the consequent decline of American influence, end quote. Okay, so this, this goes back to this idea of Tistel arguing that, yes, the United States is destructive at times. Yes, the United States has done things that aren't pretty. Um, and again, Tistel was part of that anti-war movement as well. Uh, however, inherently, the United States is still a force for good in the world. And it's hilarious when he writes these attempts to use the debacle to discredit U.S.-led interventionism as if that is some kind of um, taking things out of context. No, it it was a re it showed the problem with US interventionism. Iraq and Afghanistan and, and Libya and many, many other examples are case studies of why US-led interventionism is not the way to go, is destructive, is counterproductive, not just for the people in Iraq and Afghanistan, but also for the United States itself. So it is not me or anyone else using these cases to somehow delegitimize something that is legitimate. No, these cases show why U.S.-led interventionism isn't legitimate in the first place and shouldn't occur anymore. Yeah, but uh, here you're, you're obviously one-sided. I mean, why are you not highlighting any of the successful U.S. interventions? Yes, um, Dario, why don't you name successful U.S. interventions and we'll go through them. I don't know. I mean, Bosnia? <laughs> well, as a NATO intervention, yeah, As some people would say that may have been successful. Ask ask the Serbs how they feel about that. Um, no, I mean there there is there there are degrees of of 
of failure. Um, but 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 I don't think many people will look at at um, the 1990s interventions of NATO um, in the Balkans and actually believe that they were a resounding success. There are some arguments in favor. There are serious arguments against as well. But if that is the best that someone can come up with when it comes to US-led interventionism, then we're in real trouble because against that such a gray example where it's not completely obvious whether it was the right or wrong thing to do, uh, there are an awful lot of very dark examples that caused literally the lives of millions of innocent civilians. On top of that, you can ask yourself the principles. What what rights, what legitimacy does NATO have to take these kinds of steps? What legitimacy is there for Washington to intervene in other societies beyond the practical impact? If the United States can do that, why can't China do it? Why can't India do it? Why can't Brazil do it? What makes the United States endowed with this divine right to intervene in other societies like that? Of course, that is an issue that Tistel doesn't deal with. Another another final issue in that, in that sentence that you read is celebrate the consequent decline of American influence. It is not so much a celebration, I think, that people are displaying when they talk about the decline of American influence. For example, um, speaking about myself, I am not happy that the United States is losing power at the rate that it does. I, I do think there's a role for the United States to play in the underworld stage. But it is also important to recognize that there is a difference between celebrating the decline of a country, which I don't think anyone should ever do, and the decline of their ability to do damage across the globe. And any reasonable person looking at the past 20 years should be happy that it will be much more difficult for the United States in the future to pull something like Iraq or to pull something like Afghanistan. That is now much harder because of this decline in the power. And that is a good thing for the world. Speaking, speaking of those interventions, uh, let's move on to the paragraph that I think um, we're going to spend most time with because it is... I'm almost I'm almost inclined to say it is factual wrong, factually wrong. Um, but it reads, the Middle East shows what happens when the U.S. disengages or drops its guard. The 2011 Iraq withdrawal foreshadowed a decade of terror and civil war in Syria, Iranian hardliners running riot, uh, erstwhile Saudi allies on killing spree uh, in Yemen, Afghanistan's sunken betrayal and misery, and Israel-Palestine in rudderless chaos. Um, so let's let's walk through this one by one uh, because he throws in so many things here and I don't know if he actually understands any of them. Um, so in 2011, the United States withdraws from Iraq um, and foreshadows with this a decade of terror and civil war in Syria. Okay, so the United States was ten was was in Iraq for about ten years. Um, well, after well, so there was the invasion of 1990, uh, which we already talked about in the past as a positive example. United Nations backed. Uh, there was a clear mandate, and uh, Bush Senior stopped a few kilometers ahead of uh, Baghdad and actually left Saddam Hussein in power. Then Bush Junior, with his with some of his issues, um, then completed the missions. Uh, let's put that into big quotation marks. And then, then the United States stayed in Iraq for about uh, 10, 11 years. And then they left and left behind a huge power vacuum out of which then we had, for example, the Islamic State uh, 
uh, kind of spring up. So that's what I'm understanding here. Am I missing something on Iraq and the United States involvement there? No, and uh, what you're saying is is uh, the correct summary of things that happened. Um, and I am just as you are very confused by this this paragraph. So let's let's read that again. That sentence sentence: The 2011 Iraq withdrawal foreshadowed a decade of terror and civil war in Syria. Uh, this is one of those things where correlation is not the same as causation, right? The fact that the United States withdrew, by the way, they remained with an awful lot of private contractors and all that, but formally withdrew in 2011 from Iraq, is not the thing that caused the civil war in Syria. The damage had been done, as you just described, in Iraq and uh, by destabilizing the region. Um, it, whether the United States withdrew in 2011 or not from Iraq, the war in Syria would have happened, was already happening. The, the tensions in Syria were already building up. Iranian hardliners running riots, they started running riot the moment Saddam Hussein was overthrown. <clears throat> Saddam Hussein was the big bulwark that the United States in the 80s and in the 70s uh, built up against, well, from 79 onwards, built up against the Islamic Revolution, against Iran. By overthrowing Saddam Hussein in Iraq, Iran all of a sudden could start leveraging the huge Shiite uh, population in Iraq and they could start influencing Iraqi and regional politics much more easily than before. That had nothing to do with the withdrawal. It had everything to do with the invasion of 2003 and the years after that. Erstwhile Saudi allies on a killing spree in Yemen, again, has nothing to do with the Iraqi withdrawal. It has everything to do with basically the Obama administration allowing Saudi Arabia to do this. And, and supporting. And supporting, actively giving the green light and saying, we'll, <clears throat> uh, we'll provide you with uh, the infrastructure necessary to, to actually en enable you to ca cause havoc, to create destruction in Yemen. It, it seems almost willfully delusional for him to write that any of these items are connected to the withdrawal of formal U.S. Troop, uh, troops in Iraq in 2011. And, and so because uh, that then allows him the, the kind of reasoning like, oh, if those things somehow are connected to the withdrawal of Iraq, then that shows that the United States actually shouldn't have withdrawn from Iraq, and it shows that the United States interventionism is actually a good thing. But it doesn't make any sense. It's not based in re on reality. And, and then he moves on to Afghanistan. Um which sunk in betrayal, well, it's not necessary that 20 years of, of U.S. presence in Afghanistan did anything to prepare the country for the U.S. Dis disengaging. Um, I mean, we see what is happening in Afghanistan today. The, the, the moment the United States invaded Afghanistan in 2002 was the moment that the Afghan fate was sealed, basically. There just was no path to success in Afghanistan. Again, has nothing to do with 2011, has everything to do with going in in 2002 and putting yourself as the United States and allies in a situation that you cannot win, you cannot overcome. There was no path in Afghanistan to create some kind of brilliant liberal democratic society, just like that didn't exist in Iraq. 
And so all these issues that um, uh, Tistel mentions are good, good examples of why we should be so skeptical of US interventionism, why Western world order hasn't served humanity, why the West cannot continue to think that they can somehow tweak and, and engage with other societies and turn them into mirror images of themselves. It's not going to happen and the rest of the world is fed up with it. Israel-Palestine in rather like chaos, I honestly have no idea how that would ever be related to the Iraq withdrawal either. How? What is the connection there? I, I, I wouldn't know either. Um, then the next paragraph uh, reads, What would have happened if the US had failed to act after Saddam Hussein invaded Ku uh, Kuwait in 1990? Asked veteran analyst Bill Schneider recently. Most, uh, most likely nothing. After Europe froze in horror, it fell to the US to lead a coalition to end the Bosnian war. I, I'm genuinely confused about what he wrote there. Yeah, so most likely nothing. If, well, if, if the US had failed to act after Saddam Hussein invaded Kuwait in 1990, if the US and allies, European allies, Soviet Union, Russia, um, you know, the whole world was on board there. It wasn't just the United States. It was UN sanctioned and everyone agreed that the intervention against Saddam Hussein was warranted um, in the 90s, not, not in 2003. Um, the answer to if no one had acted, then Kuwait would now be annexed by Iraq and Iraq would be selling Kuwaiti oil. That's what would have happened. And that is not the kind of world order that we want to live in, where one country invades another country. That is not the way we want to do business in, in modern society. Um, so I don't understand that sentence at all. And then after Europe froze in horror, it fell to the US to lead a coalition to end the Bosnian war. Yeah, how is that then connected to Iraq in the 1990s? I, I, I am very, very confused here. He, he is confused. I'm telling you, Simon Tistel is confused because the, the next paragraph doesn't help either. And I quote, When atrocities occurred in Cambodia, Rwanda, Congo and Darfur, the whole world, including the US, looked away. So nothing was done. The result was genocide, Schneider argued. Yes, well, it's... Um... I'm also still a little bit confused why all of a sudden Bill Snyder is being used here, but beyond that, um, the atrocities in Cambodia were, of course, not unrelated to US interventionism elsewhere, um, Vietnam, to, to, to mention one thing. Um, but, but yes, this is, this is a problem that our global society faces. We have a Westphalian system where it's very hard to, at a global level, intervene in atrocities, including genocide like Rwanda. Rwanda, we've mentioned this before, was actually a genuine genocide, unlike so many other cases in which the word genocide gets thrown around. Um, Congo, therefore, horrible human suffering. I, uh, I don't think anyone can put that in doubt. The problem is, how do you go about dealing with that? And we have seen that whenever the the West tries to intervene at a unilateral level without UN approval without global support then things go horribly wrong and even when there is that global support it might still go wrong because intervening in another country in organized violence is a very complex and very difficult thing um, since uh, 2002 if i'm correct 
there is Monuk now called Monukso, uh, Monukso in the DRC in Congo, a UN peacekeeping force of 20,000 soldiers trying to keep, you know, violence from threatening the local population in Eastern DRC. Um, those 20,000 UN Blue Helmets peacekeepers haven't actually managed to avoid bloodshed and horrible atrocities being committed. So if the UN with 20,000 permanent troops cannot do it, why would we think that somehow it's okay for the United States to go in and how that would be a, uh, a force for good in those places? It is very complex to do that, especially in the Westphalian system. And then to add geopolitical interests of the United States or Europe into the mix is just a recipe for disaster. I don't see why he finds that so difficult to understand. Maybe this, this will give you an answer, and I quote, To this list may be added Syria, where Barack Obama, burned by Iraq, failed to intervene in 2013 to stop the Assad's regime use of weapons of mass destruction. How ironic is that? End quote. Yeah, I, uh, I, I don't know what the irony is here. Again, I'm a little bit confused by he... So this is a common thing of a bad writer, right? Where they throw sentences out there and they seem to suggest something, but he is not actually very clear or analytical about what he's suggesting here. Um, it's absolutely true that the Obama administration was burnt, just like the whole country, by the events in Iraq and Afghanistan and the war on terror. Obama, as a presidential candidate, won the elections based on a, on a less interventionist approach, saying it is not up to the United States to engage in this kind of um, military conflict across the globe, and people voted for him because of that. Um, then, yeah, he, he he failed to stop the Assad regime. I mean, use of weapons of mass destruction. I mean, I assume he's mentioning, he's referring here to chemical weapons. Okay, um, there are still some questions about what and how and when exactly, but... What is what was Obama supposed to do here? Is is Tistel actually suggesting that Obama should have militarily intervened, send another troop deployment, uh, just like they did with Afghanistan and Iraq, after exactly being burned by seeing what happened in Iraq and Afghanistan and how the United States cannot control those dynamics and how it leads to way more hardship? What was Obama supposed to do? Tistel doesn't say that because Tistel would understand that if he, he says, oh, Obama should have sent 50,000 troops to Syria, then that would be exactly contrary to all the experiences that the world has had over that time period, that sending U.S. troops to a regime it doesn't like is not the way to make the world a better place, and it's not the way to make the United States stronger on the global stage. So the next paragraph is the one that I think... If I had to summarize the Western bubble, I think I would use this paragraph. And I quote, Evidently, the US often messes up. Yet, do critics of American hegemony, deeply flawed, self-serving and arrogant, though it undoubtedly is, really believe that autocratic bullies such as Xi or war criminals such as Putin would do a better job as a global policeman? Pull the other one. It has bells on. End quote. I, I, yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't, I couldn't have said it better. Um, this is the Western bubble, everyone. Um, yeah. So this is that that last bit is 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 in many ways the least interesting bit. Uh, but but uh, just to to talk about that for a second, uh, 
Autocratic bullies such as Xi or war criminals such as Putin would do a better, global job as, a better job as global policemen. Well, no, nobody is talking about having them as global policemen. Isn't the whole point that we don't want a global policeman anymore? Isn't the point that we don't want one nation to decide who is right and who is wrong in global affairs? The world is way too complex for that. And you cannot trust the decision making either in Washington or in Moscow or in Beijing to actually take a responsible approach there. That's just not how it works. But the first bit is absolutely the Western bubble because essentially this is saying, yes, we do lots of things wrong. We cause destruction, but we're still the West. We're still inherently better than everyone else. So even though we can cause millions, and as we discussed before, it is actually millions in the previous episode, we discussed this, millions of deaths around the world, it is still okay because we are democratic and liberal and free and autocratic bullies should uh, be kept at bay. We are here to defeat those autocratic bullies and whatever evil we commit on the world stage is justified because of who we are. Be, you know, be it what may, whatever, whatever, whatever criticism you have, you cannot deny that we're liberal and democratic and therefore we're the good guys. And it's also kind of combining different, you know, different characters into the same category. I mean, we've talked about this with the dynamics behind this of the word genocide, you know, you kind of throw together um, a, a bunch of different incidents, separate incidents, which are all incredibly complex. However, by throwing them together on the one term genocide, you're kind of creating some sentiment towards some of them and actually taking away from the seriousness of some others. And he's doing the same by throwing together Putin and she as thugs. I mean, I mean, Putin is, yeah, you can say a war criminal. He willfully, voluntarily invaded another country. Xi Jinping didn't do that. He he hasn't he hasn't invaded any other country. He's he's simply not the same as Putin. And by throwing them together, of of course, putting them into the same category, you kind of create even more of an anti Xi Jinping sentiment here. Exactly, and it creates a ridiculously simplistic and very destructive uh, us versus them narrative. The good guys, the West versus everyone who isn't the West, as if everyone who isn't the West is somehow the same. And so funny enough, because now we're skipping to the last two paragraphs of this article. Um, funny enough, Simon Tissel has a similar analysis than we just had on, on, on Joe Biden. Um, and I quote, Yet Biden's bifurcation of the world into freedom-loving democracies and oppressive autocracies is too simplistic to meet coming challenges. A multipolar world and a more equitable balance of power, one not dominated and distorted by superpowers and dictators, must be the 21st century aim. It is not only fairer, it's safer. End quote. So he, he, he has reached a similar conclusion to ours. Um, I, I don't know how. Uh, the article doesn't really give that away. Um, but he somehow ended up here. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it seems to be the struggle of a man who, on the one hand, is inherently anti-war, as a, you know, his, his, his anti-war credentials from 15 years ago are there. And he somehow tries to now negotiate that with his fear of autocracy, his fear of non 
democratic systems and and it just doesn't work in his mind the analysis is not there so yeah all of a sudden he understands that we can't divide the world into freedom loving democracies versus oppressive autocracies that's exactly too simplistic but only a few paragraphs above that's exactly what he did that's exactly what he does um and then a multipolar world and a more equitable balance of power Yes, that's exactly what the globe is asking for. And the West is resisting that. When he says we should maintain the US as a global police force, we need to keep the United States interventionist. He's saying that he's against equitable balance of power because that is the very definition of a inequitable balance of power. One country that just decides who is right and who is wrong and will take military action accordingly. A real equitable balance of power would be a world where either through the UN or somehow else foreign aggressive military policy only gets taken when there is global consensus, which would mean giving India and China and yes, Russia and South Africa and Nigeria and Brazil much more power. But who's resisting that? The West. And he's basically undermining his entire statement from before with the next paragraph, which reads... That's not to say US-led Western intervention under the UN's responsibility to pr protect rubric should be abandoned as a policy of last resort. A perpetually disordered dis uh, world will always need troubleshooters and peacemakers. Better America than Xi, Putin and their ilk. End quote. Yeah, so now, now we're back to the, <laughs> to the original <laughs> message. Uh, by the way, as if the United it's, where, where it's too simplistic, right? That would be too simplistic. <laughs> exactly. uh, it's, he, so. he, said, he said a paragraph above that would be too simplistic to divide the world into freedom-loving democracies and oppressive autocracies. And then his last sentence reads, better America than Xi, Putin and their ilk. Okay. How? Welcome to the Western bubble. This is, this is exactly how our psychology has become so twisted over the years. Our Western psychology european and north american thinking about who we are and what we want um a, a tiny little technical side note uh, under the un's responsibility to protect rubric no serious person thinks that the us deals with its international global foreign policy under the un's responsibility to protect rubric the, the, the us sometimes asks for un permission because that is better marketing but the united states makes its own decisions based on its own geopolitical interest not because it cares about the un currently very few people care about the un because they don't have any real power yeah and beyond that uh, a perpetually disordered world will always need troubleshooters and peacemakers well, you know, we would we would like to have some kind of global system in which we can deal with genocide, in which we can deal with atrocities. But that requires a serious, serious thinking about how to reorganize into a post-Westphalian world order. And that has nothing to do with the United States somehow being a force for good in the world when it comes to military interventionism. That is it with today's extra episode as an addition to our regular ones. Thank you very much for sticking with us for uh, all this time. We hope that you you see the value in, in dissecting articles like these and properly pointing out in an article that was published in The Guardian. A lot of people read this, pointing out the Western bubble bias. Um, we will be grateful for your feedback to this format and questions that you can submit to the westernbubble at gmail.com. 
Next Wednesday, there will be a new regular episode, this time on the topic on, of the concept of peace in the Western bubble. Thank you.